Church, let's pray together as we start part eight of our doctrinal series on the Apostles' Creed, second last week. So let's ask that the Lord would work in and through His Word. Let's pray. Our gracious and heavenly Father, we thank You for Your Word that has been read to us. And we ask now that You would cause the meditation of our hearts and thinking of our minds to be holy and pleasing in Your sight. Speak to us by Your Spirit, we pray. In Jesus' name, Amen. Well, today we're going to explore what the creed and the Bible has to say about the necessity and importance of the church. That's the line we've come to. And as we do that, I want to highlight that one of the common misconceptions about the Christian faith is that becoming a Christian is to arrive at a destination. Some people think that becoming a Christian is to arrive at a destination. You know, uh, it was helpfully described to us in the creed. We turn from sin and death. We trust in Jesus and then we've arrived. We're there. And all we have to do is wait for Jesus to return or wait when we go to him, right? It's common to see becoming a Christian as arriving at a destination. But as we pay close attention to the Bible, what becomes evident to us is that trusting in Jesus is not so much an arrival at a destination. Instead, it's more like acquiring a new direction. It is less receiving a card that gets you into heaven. It's more like receiving a compass that points you towards Christ and takes you on a new journey. Uh, It is not so much like arriving at a destination. It's acquiring a new direction in life that slowly tunes our hearts and our heads and our hands towards Christ. It's It's what enables us to take small steps of faith every single day. And so following Jesus doesn't just mean turning from sin and death and trusting in Jesus for eternal life. Following Jesus is about conforming what we believe, what we love, and how we live into the likeness of Christ. Another word we use for this, it's a fancier word, but it means the same thing. It's sanctification, growing in our willingness and our desire to put sin to death, to walk in obedience that is motivated by grace. In other words, to grow in sanctification is to grow in our Christ-likeness. Now, as I mentioned that, it's probably not too new of an idea. Uh, it's because it's saturated all throughout Scripture. 1 Thessalonians 4, 3, it is God's will for our sanctification. 1 Corinthians 6.11, that we are not just justified in the name of Christ, we are washed and we are sanctified. Hebrews 13 verse 12, Christ died, not just that we may be saved, but we may be sanctified. It's all there in the Bible, right? And what we see here is that sanctification is not something that God just does to us and in us. Sanctification is also something that God works through us. In other words, Christian, you and I participate in the work of sanctification, in growing more like Christ. God alone saves us. In our catechism, it's by grace alone. But the Bible also shows us that sanctification is a process of godliness where we participate in, where we say no to sin and say yes to righteousness. That's what it means to grow in your Christian walk. But here's the thing. Here's the problem we face. You and I are prone to growing in our sanctification alone. We tend to think that this is a business between me and God. No one has to get involved. So we think that how I grow, what that looks like, or whether or not I grow as a Christian is really no one's business. You swim in your lane, I swim in mine. 
we may not put it as crassly, but let me ask you this question. Who in your life is intimately involved and invested in your growth, in your sanctification, in your godliness, in your Christ-likeness? Who in your life is intimately involved and invested? And I don't just mean people in your community group or your men's and women's group that gather to study the Bible together. That's very important. But who in your life is asking you hard questions about your struggle with sin, about your desire to honor Christ? Who's asking you questions about your work, your marriage, your parenting, your singleness? Who's walking with you to carefully apply the gospel into every one of these situations? Some of you will be able to name quite a few people in your life. And I praise God for that. But I suspect if you're like me, you wouldn't be able to name too many people. And there are reasons for this, aren't there? There are reasons for this sort of what I would call spiritual isolation. It could be pride. Sometimes we think we know better than others. So why would I need anyone's help? It could be fear. Perhaps we're terrified about people finding out how weak and how not put together we are. There is shame involved. We feel unworthy and undeserving to invite people in. It could also be dread. Perhaps we feel like people are difficult to get along with because, you know, dealing with people means opening up ourselves to the possibility of getting hurt. And maybe because of pride, fear, or dread, what I call the triple threat, we just prefer to just DIY, to do it yourself. It makes sense, doesn't it? Why ask for help when I already know better than the person sitting next to me? Why ask for help when I know that people are just going to judge me? And I can't risk that. My reputation is on the line. Why ask for help when I think that people just don't understand, when they're going to be insensitive anyway? People are just so dumb, you know? All of this makes sense until we realize it doesn't. It doesn't conform to God's pattern and design for Christian growth. If you remember our reading just then, which Beck read so beautifully, you realize that growing as a Christian cannot be separated from growing in the church with God's people. And unsurprisingly, those of you who've tried, those of you who've tried to separate the two, know it doesn't work. And if you insist on going down this path, you will feel constantly disappointed, dry, and distant from God. And if it's not dealt with, you risk growing bitter, angry, and cold. Church, we cannot do this on our own. And that's why partly God has saved us, not just to Himself, but into a church, a body of Christians who have been redeemed by Christ and entrusted with the important task of renewing each other as we apply the gospel to one another. If you have your outlines, let me invite you to turn there with me. Because today, I want to see how the gospel rids us of these triple threat barriers of pride, shame, and dread. These are the common things that stop us from growing in community. And as we're going to see, a careful understanding of the gospel smashes our pride. It shows us God's love and it strengthens us to grow in community. The gospel, the message of Jesus Christ, makes it impossible for us to see ourselves as spiritual islands disconnected from one another. The good news is Jesus smashes our pride and shows us you and I have nothing to stand on. But in the gospel, Jesus shows us his love so that we have nothing to be ashamed of. 
And lastly, he strengthens us to grow in community church. I hope we see that sanctification is a community project. Sanctification is a community project. And that's why we believe, as our creed says, in one holy Catholic church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins. We need this. So come to point one with me as we start. I want us to begin by showing us how the gospel smashes our pride. You see, more often than not, Christians think that we can grow in our godliness and sanctification on our own because of, as I mentioned, pride. There is just no other way to put it. We may have an overinflated sense of our accomplishments, our ability, and our achievements. Now, of course, we lace all of this with euphemisms, right? Pride has so many different expressions. We may say that we don't need others because they don't know what it's like to be me. That's, that's super common, isn't it? We may say that people are less mature than us, and how could they possibly help me? Please, I've been here for 25 years. I know what it's like, right? It's interesting, isn't it? Pride can sometimes be very overt like this, like a I'm better than you attitude. But, but pride can also be extremely subtle, and this is where it's dangerous. It can say things like, no one knows what it's like to be me. That sounds so harmless, doesn't it? It sounds nothing like what we classically understand as pride. Overt pride says, I know what's best for my life, but buried deep within subtle pride can be a belief that life is harder for me than it is for you. You will never understand my suffering, what you're going through. It's nothing compared to mine. You will never know what it's like. So there's no point in involving you anyway. It's extremely subtle and it doesn't sound like what we think as pride. But what we have to realize is that this is the world speaking, not the word of God speaking. This is a, a supposed good news of self-reliance, self-esteem and self-dependence, but it's no good news at all. It sets us up for failure and disappointment because the fact is, you and I are more lost than we dare to admit. The Bible, on the other hand, provides the good news. Firstly, by being unflinchingly and unapologetically honest about the human condition. Our reading comes from Ephesians 4, which is about the church, but it's preceded by Ephesians 2. Makes sense, right? 2 comes before and Ephesians 2 speaks about the human condition. It's in your outlines. Verse 1, as for you, you were dead in your transgressions and sin. Now that's a really hard pill to swallow. And let's be honest, one of the reasons why people reject the Christian faith is because it depicts the human condition in such a pessimistic and negative light. Just as nobody likes being told they're wrong, no one likes being told what the Bible describes us as sinners. People who've rebelled, people who've turned their backs against God. We usually think, compliment me, but don't criticize me. We live in a culture where it feels morally wrong to make any judgments about people. It's wrong to judge, it's wrong to criticize, it's wrong to condemn. And in many ways, I think this corrective about being careful to judge is very helpful. It resists the human tendency to put others down while elevating ourselves. But, but we can sometimes push this too far, can't we? Sometimes our fear of making judgments can allow wickedness and evil to slip through. Sometimes we can excuse real evil by saying, oh, they don't know better because that's how they're raised. 
oh, they don't know better because that's their context. Oh, they, they just don't know. We, we can really excuse atrocities. And we think we're being kind and compassionate and empathetic, but we can sometimes do real harm by coming up with excuses for real problems. Sometimes courage is actually expressed in calling out what is wrong, even when it's painful. Sometimes bravery is actually admitting wrong, even when it hurts. It takes a bigger man to say, I'm sorry. And you see, if we really believe that it's okay to not be okay, then we will tolerate, at least for a moment, the Bible's diagnosis of the human heart. Because the Bible and the Christian faith recognize that we as humans are precious because we are made in God's image. But it also tells us we are tainted by our own guilt, shame, and sin. No one is immune. The Bible explains so much of what we see and understand about this world, how we fail to live up to even our own standards, let alone God's. And friends, the universality of sin, how sin stains us all, smashes our pride. It's the great equalizer. No one is better than the other. Before God, we all firstly stand guilty. It's interesting, isn't it? Back in the first century, the Roman Empire saw Christians as a threat, partly because they thought that early Christians were instigators of a class upheaval. Why? Because Christians taught that every man and woman is equal in the eyes of God. All are stained by sin. All are in need of a savior. Therefore, regardless of slave or aristocrat, regardless of man or woman, regardless of adult or child, no one is inherently greater than the other. The Bible leaves absolutely no room for pride because it diagnoses us with the same condition sin. But you see, the Bible does not just speak of our human disposition towards sin solely as an expression of God's judgment, solely to smash our pride. It doesn't just tell us about how helpless and in need we are. It does all of that for sure. But equally as importantly, the Bible speaks of us in this way to show us the depths of God's love. Come to point two. And I want to read Ephesians 2, verses 4 to 5, which says, But because of His great love for us, God, who is rich in mercy, made us life with Christ, even when we were dead in transgressions. It is by grace you have been saved. Now let me pause for just a moment, right? Because I hope you realize that the Bible makes it abundantly clear that we are not, by default, lovable people. We are not, by default, lovable people. That's point one, right? And I want you for a moment right now to drop your pens and imagine this with me. Think of the person in your life whom you find hardest to love. The person who always bothers you. The one who calls you and then when you see their ID, you feel a tingling sense of dread building up in your body. You just don't want to pick up. You're like, oh, I'm going to put that in the too hard basket right now, right? The person who opens up their mouth to speak and you just roll your eyes. Oh, here we go again, right? Maybe the person sitting next to you. <laughs> you have to understand that in many ways, that's how God sees us. But worse, we did not make it easy for God to love us. 
If anything at all, the Bible's description of us is more like an ungrateful child who only knows how to take and receive and never knows how to give thanks or reciprocate. In sharp contrast to our culture, which tells us that we are amazing and we are worth loving, the Bible shows us that our true condition is the opposite. Now friends, listen very closely. Can you and I just consider for a moment how liberating this is? Because if you're like me, then you don't always feel like you are worth loving. Friends, a moment of heartfelt honesty will reveal that we sometimes don't even love who we are. Have you ever heard the saying, you cannot love someone until you love yourself? There's a degree of truth to there, isn't it? But here's the perennial problem. What if I don't love myself? What if you look into the mirror and you despise what you see? You look at your past, you look at your accomplishments or lack thereof, and all you feel is shame. Pride makes us think that we know better than others, so we try on our own. Shame makes us think that people are better than us, and so we avoid them. We're scared of them finding out our deepest and darkest secrets. We allow our insecurities to keep people at a distance when having them close is exactly what we need. Or we act out. Desperate for attention because we confuse attention for affection. Friends, listen very closely. The Bible, Ephesians 2 verse 4 to 5 tells us, in spite of all of this, in spite of the fact that you find yourselves hard to love, God loves us. It's a great love, no? Verse 2, so great that He saves us from the crippling effects of sin. Why? The language of verse 5 is grace. Getting something you do not deserve. That's the definition. And when you think about it, that's just what we need, is it not? Because you see, to fight for a love that we deserve is like trying to fill a bucket with cracks and holes in it. It doesn't matter how much you try, that bucket will never be full. We will never be satisfied. We will always be suspicious if we are ever good enough. Oh, that's a terrible feeling, isn't it? It's a thirst that we can never quench. But grace... A love lavished upon us purely because of God's kindness. That's what we see in the Christian faith. This rich and merciful love expressed in Jesus who takes our sin and exchanges it for righteousness. The language that we use that's in the catechism or in the creed is forgiveness. That we may be made right with God. And friends, I hope we see how this portrayal smashes our pride. Unless we see ourselves as God sees us, we will always suffer under the delusion of self-sufficiency. But if we see ourselves the way God sees us, both in our sin, but also in our salvation with Christ, then you and I can actually begin to foster a posture of humility. We can begin to recognize our need for God and our need for others. We can recognize how actually loved we are, not because we are lovable, but because God is gracious and kind. We begin to recognize that maybe growing in our knowledge of Him and of ourselves and how we are to live requires wisdom that comes from beyond us. 
But this gracious love is also what rids us of shame. And church, put your pens down for just a moment. I want us to realize that we need this, okay? Because shame is a profoundly powerful emotion. It makes us feel trapped and scared and inferior. It shreds our self-worth. It cripples our self-esteem. It gives us an extremely false sense of self. And as a pastor, it breaks my heart to see people living in shame. This shame comes from living under a system where you have to abide by a certain standard, where you have to be good enough. You know, some people say that religion causes people to feel shame, and there is so much truth to this. Sometimes religion can demand certain expectations that are completely irrational and unrealistic, which is why in the Bible, Jesus condemns religious leaders, perhaps more than sinners, because of the yoke that religion places on people. But it's not just religion, isn't it? It's our society and culture. Listen very closely. For all the good that meritocracy has created, it has also shackled us to a point where we are only as good and acceptable and as worthy as our last success. We are only as incredible as our last accomplishment. And we walk around with a deep shame which either makes us work harder for that next accomplishment to savor that sweet yet fading taste of acceptance or we turtle up because we have no energy to do anything at all. We're over it. We're tired of running this race. Friends, God does not want us to live in shame. God in Jesus Christ frees us from that. And listen very closely. Shame can only be freed by unconditional love. Shame can only be overcome by unconditional love. It can only be overcome by being firstly deeply known, warts and all, and then deeply loved by someone not ignoring or neglecting our past, but seeing it and recognizing it, but in affirming that our past does not define us. And then loving us even when it feels like we ourselves are not worth loving. That's what we find in the gospel, you see. God knows us at our worst and loves us. He knows our sinful condition and loves us. And dear friends, if you're a follower of Jesus, I want you to know that you do not need to carry your shame. You never have to feel like you are not good enough. You just need to accept that you are not and then humbly trust in Jesus. Do you then see how this ushers us into the reality that God has designed for us? Because at that moment, we step into a covenant community of people who are just like us. Christians who have no illusions about the state of our own hearts. That's why we do confession every Sunday. No illusion about our need for Jesus. No illusion that we are sinners. Christians know that the church is not a museum for saints, but a hospital for sinners. So as you join us in this confession of sin, week in and week out, we say to you, welcome. It's in the church of Jesus Christ where you find your true reality. 
But as we lift up our hands in a posture of receiving God's grace and responding in faith and obedience, we'll also say to you, join us. Because friends, in the gospel, there is no reason for arrogance. There is also no reason for shame. And it's by establishing this foundation that we are prepared to engage in the project of sanctification together. Now we're ready for Ephesians 4. Because while the message of the Bible smashes our pride, rebuilds us in grace, rids us of shame, the Bible also shows us that God loves us by enfolding us into the church. Come to point three with me. We begin to realize then that Christian life and growth in community is not an option. Rather, it's a biblical norm. It's an expectation. And if we are Christians who take the Bible seriously, we need to guard ourselves from allowing our experiences and emotions to determine what the Bible says. We need to anchor in the Word of God and allow everything else in our lives to conform to that. And we know that this is the norm and expectation by just even glancing at how Paul addresses his readers in the New Testament. In basically every pastoral epistle in the New Testament, starting from Romans all the way, Paul is consistently writing not just to individuals in some cases, but predominantly to saints in God's church. I'll give you specifics, okay? 1 Timothy 3, verses 13 to uh, 1 Timothy 3, verses 14 to 15, I believe it's in your outlines. This is there. It says, Although I hope to come to you soon. I'm writing you these instructions so that if I'm delayed, you will know how people ought to conduct themselves in God's household, which is the church of the living God, the pillar and foundation of truth. Paul is concerned about how Christians behave, not just generally, but how they behave, underline this in your Bibles, in the church of the living God which he describes as the pillar and foundation of truth. What's more, biblical instructions on moral ethical living were always to groups. Titus 3, verses 4 to 5. I like this one, Titus 3, 4, 5. But when the kindness and love of God our Savior appeared, He saved us, not because of righteous things we had done, but because of His mercy, He saved us through the washing of rebirth and renewal by the Holy Spirit. I am not sure what you picked up from this verse. I want you to invite you to notice something with me. Okay, look at the verse in front of you. If you blink, you'll miss it. Notice the pronouns. It's always us. God saved us, not because of anything we had done. It's always collective pronouns because the church is a necessary consequence of faithful evangelism and discipleship. Again, if you have a glance at my sorry attempt at visual representation, you will notice how this works, right? Have a look at page two of the outline with me. We are by nature scattered sinners who are dead in transgressions, living for no one else but ourselves or our tribes. But through the arrow, the redeeming work of Christ, we are saved into the church, made alive in Christ. We don't start as individual units, we save, and then we live as individual units, scattered. Rather, we are brought into a body. This is why so much of the New Testament is not just about how we are to live as Christians. It's saturated with how we are to live life together. That's how we are to mature today. That's the essence of Ephesians 4, right? Look how frequently the language of maturity and godliness is connected to our life together. 
Ephesians 4 verse 2, right? Be completely humble and gentle. Be patient, bearing with one another in love. ACG folk, that's the word alelus, one another. And the rest of Ephesians 4 speaks of maintaining unity in the spirit and it grounds it in the theological reality of our union with God. Look, look at Ephesians 4 with me. Verses 7 to 16 speaks of the gifts that God lavishes upon the church. He gives the church apostles and prophets and evangelists and pastors and teachers for what? Verse 13, maturity. These offices are called to, verse 12, equip God's people to serve. Why? That the body of Christ may be built up. That's maturity language. Verse 13, built unity in the faith. For what? so that they may attain the whole measure of fullness in Christ. In other words, Christ's likeness. They are to carefully divide the word of God, so that verse 14 and 15, they may not be tossed around by different winds of doctrine or popular fads. For what? You have to ask that question whenever you read the Bible. Verse 16, each member of the body may be built up. Church, this is God's plan and purposes. This is his blueprint for Christian growth. That we are saved into a church and folded in a covenant community and we grow together under the shepherds that God has appointed over us who are responsible for our souls. And I say that this is how God shows his love for us because he knows we need it. It's how we were designed. Things are always better in community, isn't it? It's how we are hardwired and programmed. But our sinful tendencies want to reject it and we use whatever excuses we can. Do you realize that one of the consequences of sin is isolation when you think about it? Sin disconnects you from God, but it also disconnects you from other people. It may bring you into communion with a different group of people, but those relationships are never as thick or as firm as you want. That's the consequence of sin. Yet the good news of the Bible is that Christ, by His grace, removes all of these barriers and makes it possible to live life together in the way that He has designed. Church, sanctification is a community project. You need your church to grow. Let me wrap up then with three uh, very hands-on points of application. If you haven't, haven't started taking notes, then maybe this is a good time to start. Firstly, since it is God's plans and purposes for us to grow in sanctification, and since sanctification is a community project, we ought to firstly begin by speaking well of our faith family, the church. And I say this for a few reasons. Firstly, in Scripture, what we realize is that the church is also called the bride of Christ. That's Ephesians 2 language, right? Love and treasured by God. Listen closely. God loves the church. It's not perfect on this side of eternity, but it's nevertheless precious. And so to speak ill of the church is to run the risk of devaluing what God himself values. It's like telling a husband, your wife is ugly. Get ready to get hit, right? That's just kind of what happens, right? But, but listen closely. This is not to say that we should never call out issues within the church. And I want you to hear this loud and clear, right? This church or any other church for that matter is not immune to criticisms. Why? Because there are sinful people here. 
And so whistleblowers should bring to light any sin, injustice, or wickedness they find in the church. That's part of purifying the church. In fact, at Grace Point, we welcome that. We have a conduct protocol unit that is specifically designed to deal with genuine problems of abuse and complaints in the church. I've given you a link to that in your outlines. We do not mask problems. We don't bury it. We don't pretend it's not there. We deal with it the way God wants us to deal with it. It's important to us. And yet, I also think that the culture of cynicism and skepticism and discontentment that is rampant within our culture can very easily seep into our church and spread within the church. This is a critical attitude that loves to complain when things don't go the way we want. It's a harsh mentality that is constantly angry when people don't live up to our expectations. It's a fixation on everything that has gone wrong while failing to recognize when things have gone right. It's an expression of pride. And let me be honest with you, I struggle with this. Because you see, there are few people in the church who see the problems and brokenness and imperfections of the church like I do. And this, along with an earnest desire for growth, can so easily lead to sinful cynicism. Now, maybe you struggle with this as well, right? You want what's best for the church, but the ideal falls so short from reality, we can become disgruntled and angry. But church, don't you see, it is God's desire for sanctification to take place right here. And if the church is the bride of Christ, then we ought to watch our language when we speak of the church. We need to discipline ourselves to speak well of our faith family, both publicly and privately. And again, this doesn't mean we pretend that we have no problems. But it means that we celebrate notes of grace, whether big or small, wherever we see it. It means cultivating an attitude of gratitude and praise. It means allowing hope to be our default posture rather than hate. Grace Point, this is where God has placed you. Let me encourage you firstly to speak well of it when it's appropriate. And you may be surprised that your habit of speaking well will slowly allow you to start focusing on the amazing things that God is already doing here. And He is. But here's another thing to consider. One of the ways to help love our church is to, secondly, resist the fantasy of a perfect church. Resist the fantasy of a perfect church. You see, complaining usually comes from comparison. Complaining usually follows from comparison. We sometimes speak ill of our faith family because it, live in, it doesn't live up to what we see somewhere else. It doesn't live up to what we imagine in our heads. Now, of course, this doesn't mean that it's wrong to have a vision of what church could be like. We should have that. It's good and godly to long for healthy growth, both in depth and width. Grace Point, we want to be a more godly and holy church. We want to be more evangelistic and missional. We want to make more disciples. We want to grow people in the nation's generations. But we need to be careful that a godly desire can become a fantasy and then an idol. And the problem is, when we allow our fantasies of a perfect church to dominate the way we think and behave, that actually begins to tear apart what God is already doing right here. 
As a quote in your outlines I want to read for us, is by the German theologian Dietrich Bonhoeffer. It says, Every human idealized image that is brought into the Christian community is a hindrance to genuine community and must be broken up so that genuine community can survive. Those who love their dream of Christian community more than Christian community itself become destroyers of that Christian community, even though their personal interests may ever be so honest, earnest, and sacrificial. Church, maybe some of us ought to repent of allowing our fantasies to control the way we live. You see, our ideals only exist in scatter pieces, in snippets, in moments where we get a taste of what is to come. You may think the ideal church is elsewhere. Somebody else thinks the ideal church is here. What's the problem? That we're comparing other people's highlight reels and mountaintop experiences to our hidden folders and our valley experiences. And so we value mountaintop experiences, but listen closely. Durable and sustainable Christian community is not built on these moments. The gifts and graces of our fellow brothers and sisters meet our daily need for grace. They say the grass is not greener on the other side. It is greener where you water it. Which is why lastly, I want to encourage you to invest deeply in this covenant community. That's what it means to follow Jesus. It's not about arriving at a destination. It is beginning a new life small steps of faith towards the same direction. And friends, this is one of the most enriching experiences that you'll find. You become more human in covenant community, where you are brought in by God's grace, where you are sustained by God's grace through God's people. Sanctification is a community project. So let's invest, right? And let's invest firstly by asking hard questions. This is so important. Because you see, it's not uncommon for many of our conversations to revolve around the trivial. Now, I want to say that there is nothing wrong with trivial. Small talk is not sinful. You know, write that down. Small talk is not sinful. Small talk is significant. Why? Because most of our lives, let's be honest, are pretty mundane. And a big chunk of our lives is fairly unordinary. So when I ask someone, how's your week? They say, it's okay. I believe them. It's okay. So to engage in small talk is actually being willing to step into the bulk of someone else's life. If all you want to do is focus on the significant, you're only stepping into maybe 10% of their life. But to say, I'm willing to enter into your mundaneness, you're stepping into the 90%. That's love. So it's good to ask about work, family, hobbies, and holidays. It's good to ask, what are you crocheting? It's good to ask, what fertilizer do you use for your grass? In fact, tell me later, I need to know, right? It's it's good to ask, which school should I send my kid to? It's good to ask, what's your favorite map on Counter-Strike? D-Dust, right? Now, these are all good conversations, yeah? But let's not stop there. Since we need each other for mutual sanctification, let's slowly get into the habit of having a small talk, but get into the habit of moving into asking hard questions that begin to inquire about the state of our faith. Here's a few. I've given it to you. It's scary. You might 
even be afraid of asking yourself, right? But what do you fear? What do you not want? What do you worry about? Where do you find refuge, safety, comfort, escape, pleasure, and security? Parents, ask your kids this. Whom must you please? Whose opinion of you counts? From whom do you desire approval and fear rejection? Whose value system do you measure yourself against? In whose eyes are you living? Whose love and approval do you need? Friends, ask this of one another. What do you think will make you happy? What do you pray for? These are hard questions. Or as the Christian council, David Powellinson calls x-ray questions. These hard questions reveal the state of our heart and allows us to know which direction we are headed for. Crisis or Christ. And it's by unearthing these hidden values that we can begin to point each other to Christ. We need this, right? We can't do this on our own. It's painful. But here's another quote by Dietrich Bonhoeffer, who says, Nothing can be more cruel than the leniency which abandons others to their sin. Nothing can be more compassionate than the severe reprimand which calls another Christian in one's community back from the path of sin. CG leaders, perhaps you can try integrating some of these uh, questions within your group as you break off to share in groups. This might be helpful for you as you ask hard questions. After asking hard questions, we need to then invest by listening with intent. We listen not to judge or criticize. We listen to understand and empathize. And don't you see, we live in a world that doesn't want to listen. We want to speak. We live in a world where everyone says, I am not heard, but nobody wants to hear others. We are so desperate to be heard that we will speak on top of each other. We will yell, we will kick, we will scream, we will act out. And in doing so, we drown out each other's voices and we drown out the voice of God. Do you realize that to speak on top of each other is subhuman? That's why parents tell their kids not to do that. To speak on top of one another is to treat others as objects that feed our need for attention. But to listen well after asking hard questions is a profound way to love. Uh, here's another quote for you. David Orsberg, the theologian, says, Being heard is so close to being loved that for the average person they are almost indistinguishable. You hear that? If we are to listen with intent, we need to begin by giving people at least three things, right? Space, time, and attention. It cannot be rushed or hurried. There's a pastoral note in your outlines by Pastor Eugene that speaks of unhurried space. Very practically, this part of the reason we bought some gazebos for morning tea. We want to create a space where you can have unhurried conversations. And in God's kindness, if we ever get to find a new space or build a new space, I'd love for us to invest in serious space like a foyer or a cafe where we can spread out and have comfortable space to listen to one another, to enter into each other's lives. And if you want to know how fragile gazebos are, have a look at the car park. There's one flying over the fence, right? It's from next door. If you want to listen with intent, we must also give people our attention. Our body language needs to communicate that what you are saying to me is important. 
We need to be emotionally prepared to have potentially heavy conversations. That means resting well the day before, letting yourself know that you are entering into a community where you may have a conversation that transforms someone's life. Another quote by Bonhoeff, I've been reading him a lot recently for some studies, so you're getting a lot of him, right? It says, just as our love for God begins with listening to God's word, the beginning of love for other Christians is learning to listen to them. Listen with intent, space, time, and attention. Lastly then, to invest in our community is to serve with willingness and gladness. So we invest not just relationally, that's such a big part, but we also invest in ministry. Author Bill Hull says this, it is through our self-sacrificial, self-forgetting, God-honoring, and other person-minded ministry that we become, underline this, more like Christ. It's important to recognize that we serve not firstly to fill a gap, not firstly to be put on a roster, not firstly to meet a need. At an even more foundational level, serving God and one another is a way to grow as a Christian. It's to step outside of what feels natural to us, that is self-preservation, in order to do what the Spirit enables us, and that's self-sacrifice. And I pray that those currently serving, formally or informally, will recognize that your ministry is not just a blessing to others, It is also deepening your likeness to Christ. And I pray that those who are not serving may consider how they may use their time, their talents, and their treasures to the glory of God. Listen to the sermon from a couple of weeks ago where we explored this. By serving, they become more like Christ. Interesting, isn't it? Serving has to take place in a community. The community, uh, sanctification is a community project. It's like learning a language, right? You can practice all the principles and the paradigms, but the only way to learn a new language is by speaking to another person. You can do all the Duolingo in the world, right? But you will never learn to speak fluently. It is that careful practice that sometimes includes fumbling and mumbling that we begin to acquire a new language. In the same way, our sanctification and maturity is deepened as we do it together. Church, since Christ removes our pride, rids us of shame, I pray that we will pursue this with gladness. Let's pray. Our gracious and heavenly Father, we thank you for your word to us, and we thank you for the creed which affirms something that is so true, something that is so beautiful, and something that we so desperately need, life together in the church for our sanctification and holiness. So our Lord and God, I pray for those who continue to wrestle with pride and shame. And today I pray especially for those who are wrestling with shame. (laughs) Maybe for their whole lives they've been told by their moms and their dads and their friends and their bullies that they're not good enough that they will never amount to anything, that they're a waste of space, and we just carry this deep within our hearts, and the way we interact with one another is, is, is an overflow of this. Our gracious God, we pray that the love of God in the gospel would fill and drown out these feelings of shame as you rid us of these things, as you remove the sin and the guilt 
and as you instead replace it with the righteousness and the holiness of Christ. And our gracious God, may we be a community that does not pretend, that does not put on a mask, recognizing that all of these things are hindrances to growth. It may look like we are put together, but we may end up looking like whitewashed tombs, pretty on the outside, but dead on the inside. May we truly embrace this call in Scripture to be brutally honest and sincere about how we see ourselves, but also to be brutally dependent on Christ who loves us by His grace. May our lives never be the same. In your name we pray. Amen.